Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Eric Patest. He's a CNRS researcher, all part of the University of uh, Pierre at Marie Curie, Mercury University in, in uh, France. I'm going to talk about uh, evolutionary biology and his research. So, Eric, thank you for coming. Thank you very much. If you would, tell me about your research. Sure. So, uh, what do we do? We're interested in the evolution of interactions. We care for what biology cares about, that is, interaction, but from an historical evolutionary perspective. So, we want to understand how different kind of entities, could be molecules, could be organism interact with one another and what are the outcomes of these interactions. The general idea of our work is to try to track the evolution of processes and eventually the evolution of ecosystems rather than the evolution of species. So what are some models of interaction that you've been looking at so far? Well, we are first describing what we think are the interactions taking place in nature. So for this, we basically uh, register what is present with what, uh, with uh, what frequency, with what numbers. And that gives us a backbone that you could see as an ecological description of the world or a systemic description of the world. And this backbone is basically a network of interaction. When we are interested in a given question, we want to know what is present, what is interacting with what. And given that backbone, then we want to see how dynamically it evolves over time. So the first model we need to use is a network of interaction. It could be interaction between genes, between proteins, between organisms, between biotic and abiotic uh, components. But once we have this first structure, then we can try to ask questions. We can analyze the graphs using network sciences and using concept of evolutionary biology. 
But what, what's an example of a, uh, a system you've already used and analyzed and what did you discover? Good question. So for example, that's more of a prospective discovery than of a discovery, really. But uh, you know that viruses are genetically interfering with uh, the host. Viruses need host cells to replicate. And when they um, fulfill their life cycle, viruses express their own genes and they also manipulate, hijack uh, the cellular functions. So what you have in effect is an interaction between genes, proteins of viral origins with genes, proteins that are coming from the host. And that creates a network that is interesting because it is composed of components coming from uh, different sources. And the question you can have about this is what host processes are being hijacked, manipulated by viruses. So typically this is interesting because when you start connecting the viral proteins or the viral genes with uh, that of the host, you do realize that maybe viruses are connected to very central genes or very central proteins of the host. If you have a virus that is pirating genes or owns gene copies or owns regulators of genes that are very important for the host, then you will see that with a network because you will have your viral genes or your viral protein connected to a very central, very important host node. That's an example of how one can use network and the kind of discovery you will make then is about what processes in the host are manipulated, hijacked by viruses, for example. So you're looking at it just more of an overview of a systems view, you mean, instead of a single gene or a single protein? You're right. There is a big holistic uh, viewpoint here because you could look at any kind of interaction, truly, as long as it is solid, trusted interaction. You don't have to have a privileged uh, gene to focus about, but you can also care for pretty specific uh, systems. You can track, for example, uh, specific domains within genes. You know, genes are composed of a smaller component, and these smaller components, some of them have received names. They're called domains because they correspond to functional units that are together building up genes. And so you can decide that you want to know for a very specific genetic domain with how many other genetic domains it is associated all over the protein universe. And if you do that, basically you can start from a, a very specific domain and look for its neighbors in a in a network that would show these associations. So you can have really have it both ways. You can start from your favorite gene, or you can have a broad view of what is interacting with what. And the question for us is, how did this interaction evolve? Where do they come to be? How did different partners uh, integrate it with one another in a functional way? Well, how do you think um, viruses have adapted to target specific cells in certain creatures? How do you think that happened? Well, that happens because viruses, uh, in some sense, have their own selfish interest. And one of their interests is to replicate manipulating the host. For example, if you have a host like us with uh, defense systems, it is important for the virus to fight these defense systems. This would be called a harm race. This would be called coevolution in some sense. And uh, because viruses need to overcome our uh, defenses to replicate, then if it can do it by um, modifying, affecting, regulating how we genetically regulate our own defense systems and the virus that are able to do this will be selected for 
positively selected for, evolution will favor the one that are able to manipulate the host to weaken the host defense systems. And this is, uh, we believe, how it can happen. Basically, it's a process of uh, selection that uh, eventually will favor some interactions over others. Are you trying to model selection itself? Or like, how do you even model this no. to get any useful information out of it? No, it's a, it, it's a good question. We are trying to do uh, things in a very simple way. Uh, you know, selection is often uh, classically in population genetics modeled by basically counting how many offspring a given uh, entity is going to, to produce. And so fitness is often equated with reproductive success. For interactions, it's more difficult because you can have interactions between a different kind of entities that are not per se reproducing. And therefore, what we are trying to look into is within the structures of the network, whether there are some interactions that are over time uh, occurring again and again that are robust uh, to change or that are resilient to change, meaning that if they go away, they come back and eventually with frequencies increasing in the population of described interactions. So this is almost like a topological search. You take a network, you give weights to the edges composing the network, to the nodes uh, that are present, and you search for nodes that are increasingly abundant edges that become in increasingly strong, for example. And if you observe this kind of pattern, and this is in a series of network over time, then you have a good hint that something right is done in a sense by this interaction and those interacting partners because they manage to thrive uh, in more abundant, uh, stronger uh, proportions than they used to before. What, are you trying to predict then interactions? Are you trying to... That, predict that outcomes? Would, I mean, what's, what's the modeling? Uh... That would be nice, really, because what I'm describing is an attempt from an evolutionary biology, evolutionary biologist um, to basically move from a description of what is related to what, which is classic phylogenetic perspective, to modeling, in a sense, the evolution of ecosystems, that is the interaction between different species, not just what is related to what, but what functionally works when different species are interacting together in an environment. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And so in terms of prediction, what could be especially important would be to know whether a given ecosystem is stable, meaning it is composed of robust or resilient interactions, or whether this ecosystem is about to tip, or whether this ecosystem is in fact somehow declining. And so, yes, you need to be able to find a way, not only to model the interaction in your ecosystem of interest over time, but also to try to capture the feature, the network features that makes you believe that this is a network that's going to be stable for longer, robust, or in fact that it is a network that has weaker parts weaker interactions, weaker components, and would be um, sensitive to 
changes, random changes, you know, catastrophic effects of, of various kinds. And so prediction is one of the desirable outcome. It's not something we know how to do yet, but knowing that we are now in the Anthropocene and the environment is threatened, it is indeed a good idea to be able to predict whether the evolution of the environment is looking good or is going to be tragic. So, I mean, how are you supposed to evaluate these systems you're looking at? Are you just looking at, I don't know, and viruses? I mean, when you get infected by a virus, from what I understand, you're not infected only by one exact viral sequence, but the viruses will have different, uh, you know, different sequences slightly. So, I mean, can you evaluate reproductive fitness there? You know, the which viruses and which sequences are successfully interacting with cells and which are not? Right. But how can you model what you're talking about? Okay, no, so, so that's uh, not exactly what we are doing, but that is exactly part of what we should be doing because what we want to know is uh, how different entities, here different viruses with different sequences, are uh, going to succeed or not succeed in a given system to multiply and whether this ultimately is going to uh, lead the system to crash or eventually is compatible with uh, persistence of this collective uh, composed of uh, infecting viruses and the host and the host population. So the way you want to model this is uh, basically by integrating knowledge from different sources, from different observations. What is especially important is that uh, networks are very flexible and they allow you to uh, basically put inside a given framework knowledge from microbiology, knowledge from biology, knowledge from uh, sequence evolution, and also, I would like to say, medical knowledge, in a sense, because if you know that a given population or a given ecosystem, based on what a medical expert or, say, if, the, if this is the ocean and oceanographer would say about its health, uh, then you can integrate this information. It's called metadata. And you will see, oh, that's a, an ecosystem that is doing bad. And this is how it is structured. It is basically maybe under attack by a very uh, nasty invader, a very mean virus with a given specific sequence. Or if you have another medical viewpoint, you can say this is actually a situation where uh, the host can handle the multiple virus virus uh, attacks. And so you need a qualifier that's going to be provided by someone whose expertise is to tell you this is an ecosystem doing well, this is a host population doing well. And that's important, again, because network is about uh, integrating different scientific practices. So is there a particular network that you're using right now to study? And what have you learned from it? Or is this more early, early days and you haven't gotten there yet? Yeah, it's, uh, in, in many sense, it's early days. And that's why it is very exciting. And also, in many sense, we're st- studying a lot of uh, such networks. And the reason why we can uh, study many of them is because there are plenty of interaction networks that are well-documented now, publicly available. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So if you protein-protein interaction networks, you know that some proteins are associated with aging, for example, in humans. And so you have a, a big network that tells you what proteins known to be associated with aging uh, is connected with what other proteins. And that allows you to make some predictions about the functions 
of the neighbors of proteins of interest. So, for example, protein A is uh, associated with aging, but it is connected to protein B that is uh, with another connection also connected to protein C that is also associated with aging. So maybe B in between A and C, both associated with aging, maybe B is also also, it hasn't been demonstrated yet, associated with aging. This is called guild by association. And so what we are doing very specifically in my lab, we are searching by guild by association what genes and what proteins, be they carried on viruses or be they hosted in the host genomes, may be associated with aging based on the interaction we know between proteins and genes already demonstrated to be associated with aging. So you're looking for the presence of, let's say, certain genes or proteins in an aging process that are with known proteins and genes that cause aging. So you're trying to figure out what are these ancillary ones that are also participating or, or what do you mean? So what we're doing is exactly this. We're mining networks to identify based on neighborhoods within a given network, what are the likely functions of the genes that are also present in the same region of the graph. So if you imagine a network with colored nodes and the nodes represent proteins that are, say, associated with aging, and you put them in red for some reason, then you will notice many regions that are full of red. And in between the red nodes, you will see densely connected with them some non-red nodes, let's, let's say them white. And you will wonder, why is this white node connected to so many red nodes? Is this statistically significant? Is it expected? Does this suggest that the white node should be red? And this is how, how it works. So we, we're doing that, and we're in particular looking into genomes of viruses, whether they carry some homologs, copies of the genes that are white in my uh, aging protein network and connected to lots of red proteins. So basically, are the viruses regulators of uh, human aging? Is it the case that the genes they carry are going to be connected with the genes associated in aging and the protein associated in aging in human networks? That's an example of an application we're doing in the lab. Are you saying that certain viruses are connected with aging? Has that been established yeah. at all? That, that's what I'm saying, yes. And what so these would be long-term ones that uh, are latent within us or active for many decades or when, when or where would they appear? It could be both because uh, basically there could be uh, viruses that are happy to uh, accelerate your cellular aging because uh, they don't need your cell as much as your body needs them for to fulfill their replication cycles. The viruses may be happy to uh, kill yourself faster, get them um, to become senescent, or it could be latent viruses. But in the case of latent viruses, the other exciting possibility is that they do not manipulate aging. So we could actually use the latent viruses to later in the future as a Trojan horse uh, integrate some additional genes that may uh, manipulate aging. Uh, that has been uh, tried experimentally by scientists trying to uh, transform latent uh, marine uh, viruses into uh, marine viruses carrying uh, telomerases. And the idea was that modified viruses could uh, affect, interfere, and extend the lifespan of infected mice. And they, they showed, also the paper is currently only on bioarchive, that it seems to be the case that when you change uh, in a latent virus that is not interacting with your aging, uh, some of its genes so that it carries some genes that could do you good or do the mice good, then the mice live much longer, like 30 or 40% uh, longer. 
So yes, in principle, it could be latent or non-latent viruses, and it has a different kind of interest depending whether it is a latent virus or, or not a latent virus. But this is a research question. We want to know to what extent viruses that are able to infect uh, humans or able to infect the microbiomes of humans, they would be phages in this case, uh, are potentially able to interfere with human aging. That's a research question. Yeah, I was going to say, by definition, the viruses that would affect a mouse or a person, I mean, the only reason we know about them usually is the creature is sick, not doing better, not living longer. Right. But are you saying, are you looking at phages or are you looking at viruses that affect mice directly? So we're not looking in mice, right? I was mentioning an experiment by a colleague scientist that you can find online, but uh, we are looking with bioinformatic means in phages from the microbiome, in viruses that are known to infect humans, whether the gene content of these viruses and the gene content of these phages is uh, comprised of genes that resemble are similar, are homologous to the ones uh, that in humans are associated with aging or to their regulators. So you see, it's Again, So you're looking at phages in, in people's microbiomes or you're looking yeah. at viruses that make them sick to both. see what... Both. both, absolutely both, yeah. And, and, I and think you, it's a, a big enough job to just look at one. I mean... No, 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 it's, it's not... Know, microbiome <laughs> science, I know, has been kind of restricted, seems like mostly to the bacteria, but you're looking at the phageome then? Of, yep. of people and seeing that okay yep. so what have you identified how many different phages well, I, I, and, uh... I don't know it's a research a research in progress <laughs> mm-hmm. we, okay. we, we, we know shortly but the idea is that also those are very large data set because precisely we're guided by the network structure we know what to look for we want to look for those genes that are either the direct neighbors of the genes of interest in our network or that are themselves the red nodes i was mentioning about so basically, you start from the human sequences and you make a comparison, sequence comparison across all the genes that have been sequenced to date in phages and then in viruses. And do you find a match or you don't find a match? And because phages are not humans and because viruses are not human, you do not expect to see a match. But if you see a strong similarity between a sequence that is currently sitting in a virus or in a phage, then this is something astonishing. And you need to, to explain why this similarity why why are you skipping the bacteria? Why not look at the target of the phages, oh, which is the bacteria we are, we are, and, instead of our cells? I mean, what, even if the viruses have, yep. you know, sequences that are similar to, to regulatory sequences in our DNA, yep. who's to say that it's they're interacting directly with us and they're not really phages? They're, you know, you're, you're, you're correct. Interacting with bacteria. Yeah. No, you, you're absolutely correct. And so then the question is about uh, dealing with big data set, indeed. And, and finding the relevant ones. Uh, what is especially exciting for us are these, um, what's called MAGs. So it's um, assembled metagenomes. So genomes from metagenomic data that have been reassembled to uh, obtain what would be the highest quality, most complete genomes from bacteria living in us or on us. And so those are good data set to mine. You're absolutely correct. So you're also looking at the bacteria as well and their genes and well, this whole no, chain? We're, we're, doing what, we're doing what we can, and I'm going to make you a slightly deflationist answer here, but we are a small French team, so we, you know, we, we do what we can. So this current experiment you're running, when do you anticipate you're going to get your results? How far along is it? Within months. Okay. 
Do you have any preliminary results you can share or you have to keep it all quiet? No, it's done. Yes, no, nothing I want to share now today, but uh, you were asking me for a specific example of how mm. we were using networks for specific uh, research questions. And I was telling you that in general, it was a good idea to, to study networks on the evolution of interactions because there is lots to be learned about the stability of systems and, and the interaction between different kinds of partners. And then I gave you a specific kind of example on a specific kind of research. Well, has anyone even identified, you know, all the phages that are typically associated with, uh, you know, any given person? I mean, the microbiome itself is, I guess it's hundreds of players yeah. and it's different in each person. Yep. Is the phageome on that scale or is it thousands oh, yeah, yeah. tens it's, of thousands it's, it's, or how many? Super big. I, I doubt this has been exhausted. And this is another thing we do in the lab. We are uh, mining microbial dark matter. And to do this, we do this in a different way. We basically, well, you know, there are uh, many unculturable uh, microbes and, and viruses, and we only know them through uh, traces of their genomes, bits of their genes. And uh, so that's called the microbial dark matter because it's a lot of genes from the environment. We basically don't know who is carrying them and what do they code for. So we're trying to <laughs> search whether in this microbial dark matter, there may be hints of very divergent uh, microbial groups um, that would belong to lineages that are very different to the currently known lineages. And therefore, this microbial dark matter, as you mentioned, is especially exciting because it has potential to unravel uh, life as we do not know it, know it. And you're right, we are far from having exhausted this microbial diversity. This is a big uh, research theme in my lab. We want to know what's out there and especially whether there are very surprising, shockingly divergent lineages uh, in those microbiomes. How many, I mean, are you taking microbiome samples from people? And is your cohort composed of X number of people? Or how many different systems are you looking at within within people? How many different microbiome systems? So, so we, we, we're not specifically uh, looking within people for those ones. We are, because we, we're more specifically looking for environmental data sets. And um, the challenge here is to be able to uh, look into the sequences of uh, gene families that in general, across life forms and across microbes are sufficiently well conserved and not too frequently uh, laterally transferred so that if you find a strange sequence belonging to this kind of gene family, you know you are uh, looking at something weird. So basically, the first step is to identify gentle, kindly evolving gene families that are basically with the sequences allowing you to sort archaea on the one side, bacteria on the other side, and you would not uh, confuse a bacteria for an archaea based on the sequences. And then based on these gene families, you expand them with uh, sequences that are similar to them in the environment. And with sequences that are similar to these similar sequences in the environment, and with sequences that are similar to these similar sequences in the environment, to do iterative uh, sequence comparison, but at the same time, you make sure that when you make a long chain of similar sequences grow, uh, they always align over the same initial starting region. So that means basically they are very divergent from the sequences you started from, but they would align over the same region. So they would be homologous. And when you grow gene families that are in principle, as we know them, very kind and gentle in their evolution, and we notice that they are suddenly uh, connected with sequences that are very divergent, very different, 
then uh, it is exciting for us because uh, we know that this gentle family is not so gentle in the environment, and then we have to understand why. I just wonder how you're getting your data sets. Are there page-owned data sets? This this is something very important, by the way. Again, uh, we are a French team. We are not very rich. We are doing fundamental research, so we rely a lot on publicly available data sets. And typically, an example is a TerraOcean data set. It's a good data set to, to mine, uh, but there are plenty of, uh, of other uh, data sets. The most exciting data set for us nowadays would be the one with um, genomes assembled from the environment, so the mags I was telling you about earlier. And, but what we do in my lab is that we develop the methods to mine these data sets. We don't um, build the data set. We exploit the data sets that are available to us. And through collaboration, when people are interested and they want to know whether there are weird stuff in their uh, environment, then they come to us and we, we have a look. Well, very good. Uh, Eric, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research and to keep tabs on your upcoming papers? I think it's, uh, well, it, before COVID, it used to be by meeting. Uh, people and, and getting in touch, uh, you know, around posters and, and talks and uh, informally. And now I think we rely a lot on our uh, pre-existing network of collaborators. And uh, we hope that our good fame is going to uh, bring us new collaborations. So it's a, it, it's a quiet, efficient process of trust between scientists. I think it's very important. Okay, well, very good. Uh, again, is there a website or a place people can go to learn about your work? Where should they well, go? I, honestly, the best way is to uh, do a PubMed search on uh, our work uh, because this would cover more uh, comprehensively the diversity of, of the research we do. We also have a lab website. I'm not very sure it is extremely up to date. It's uh, www.evil-net.fr. So you could go there to have a glimpse of, of what we do. Well, very good, Eric. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And I know it's a late evening in France, so thank you for being here. Thank you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.